If you have a, a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 16 this morning. Luke chapter 16. After spending a few days in Ohio with my family, I came back and though I slept in quite a bit, uh, maintained my normal ritual of going to, to the coffee shop on Saturday morning to work on my sermon and one of the, the young men that's working there now is actually a pastoral intern at a church plant in Saginaw. And so uh, he, he knows me by name and he always asks what I'm working on, what, what I'm studying. There was a clue that he was more than just a normal barista when uh, I put my commentaries on the table and went up and he says, are you doing exegesis today? And I thought, that is not a word I hear most people uh, use in everyday conversation. It kind of caught me off guard at, at 5.45 in the morning. And so thankfully he filled in the gaps for me. But Today, uh, or on Saturday, he said, uh, what, what are you studying today? I said, uh, Luke 16. And his first response was, what happened to Luke 15? Uh, if you were here last week, you know Luke 15 has the story of the gracious father and two lost sons. And it is a story that is probably one of the most famous parables that Jesus told, especially from Luke's gospel. And this young man knew that was in Luke 15. And that's, that, that's what he wanted to hear about. That's what he wanted to, to, to know about. What, what, was, what, about you, what did you say about Luke 15? I have a suspicion that, that he did not have any clue what was in Luke 16. Not because of anything wrong in him, but because what we have here in this passage is, if, well, if, if Luke 15 is famous, Luke 16 is infamous. Because it starts with this large parable that, frankly, on the surface, surface of it, looks really odd. It looks as if Jesus is advocating and commending sinful action. And if we're not careful, we're going to walk away puzzled, wondering what in the world does this have to do with anything? I imagine that probably, if we're honest, most of us, when we come to a confusing passage, we simply move on to the next thing, looking for something quick and helpful to our souls. But if we do that with Luke 16, we will miss some really important words that Jesus wants to say specifically to his disciples. So follow along as I begin reading at verse 1 of Luke chapter 16. Jesus also said to his disciples, remember he, he was talking to the Pharisees when, and the scribes when we ended at chapter 15. It's the same situation, but now he's turning to his followers. And he said to them, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to them, the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. 
If you then who have been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, will, who will entrust you to the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the word of God this morning. Hear it and believe. And we've only looked at the first half of this chapter, but everything in this chapter involves money. We're going to look at these first 18 verses this week and the rest next week. But this morning, what we want to hear from Jesus is the dangers of money and therefore how Jesus' disciples should not only rightly regard money, but also rightly use it, wisely use it for God's kingdom. In order to understand these things, we first need to note that Jesus says that we should learn from worldly shrewdness. We should learn from worldly shrewdness. Jesus sets the scene by telling us there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. Now it may seem fairly obvious, let's just state it. People who are rich are rich generally for a reason especially if they have earned their wealth. They know how to manage money in a way that it increases rather than decreases. Waste is not something that increases it. Therefore, it is not something that they are happy with. So it's no surprise when this master finds his hireling wasting his possessions, he doesn't respond too kindly. It's not that he's cruel or unfair, but he is clear, you're not doing your job, so you're not going to do this job any longer. Now, despite that this is completely deserved, it is not something that this individual wants to hear. It's not a message that the manager was wanting to get when he woke up that morning. So he says to himself, what shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. This guy is white collar all the way. He doesn't dig dishes. He doesn't haul dirt. He talks and he writes in ledgers and is used to sitting behind a desk. He says, if I got to go out there and work with my hands, I'm done. I'm going to starve. I can't, I can't do that. But he's also proud. He's too prideful to be poor and beg for help. So what, what is he going to do? Well, he says to himself, I've decided what to do. A plan formulates in his mind. But what is the end goal? I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So the man is devising this scheme that will help him find support for himself after he has been fired. The master has told this manager to turn in his accounts. But until that happens, he is technically still in control of the rich man's books. So he puts his plan into action. Verse 5, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill, sit down, and quickly write fifty. Then he said to another, 
And how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. And he said, take your bill and write 80. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't live in a world where I barter oil and wheat. Okay? So, so you might need help like me. What in the world are we talking about here? Well, without going into all the math conversions, and I can point you, I can print off those commentaries if you're really interested. Let me just say that the, the, the measures of oil would be the equivalent of three years worth of wages for the, day, for the average worker. We are not talking about uh, a few pennies here. We're talking about massive, huge amounts that are owed to this master, and therefore we're dealing with huge discounts that this manager is giving to these debtors. And he wants them to feel the weight of these discounts. Now, you understand, this, guy's, this guy for a living manages the books. He doesn't have to ask what these guys know, uh, owe the master. He knows exactly what they owe. Nevertheless, he says, tell me how much you owe so that when he gives them the discount, it will ring in their ears what he is doing for them. It will be a reminder to them of, of the debt that has been reduced, making them feel all the more thankful that they may in turn help this manager in the coming days. Now, the, the reality is he's cutting the bill that these guys owe. And if we were the master, most of us would probably be livid with this kind of behavior. It's kind of like when uh, one of the former presidents left the White House. Um, he, uh, well, I mean, you, ha you just have to say it because it, it ruins the story otherwise. It was, it was the Clintons. You know, they pretty much trashed the White House because they didn't like the Bushes. So all of the W's off the keyboards were popped off uh, in, in the White House staff offices. Uh, trinkets were, 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 were taken, I mean, the, the whole bit. It, it, was a, it was a pretty much a, a, a black eye on the presidency if, if it could be any worse after that one. But uh, you imagine it looks very much like the manager's doing the same way. I, I'm spiking the boss on the way out. I, I'm making things bad for him, even though it's going to come out for myself. It's clearly unethical. It's certainly disrespectful. We would not be happy with it. And yet the very next verse comes as a surprise. Verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. What? How could he commend him for doing this? Now, some have tried to explain this by saying that, that the, ma the manager actually didn't do anything wrong. Perhaps he just called in the debts without taking his commission for it, or that he was canceling some kind of overcharge. But the problems of this explanation are obvious. First of all, remember the size of the amounts we're talking about here. There's no way he's making 50 and 20% commission on, on this kind of thing. Furthermore, any overages that he would have charged would not have been written into the formal agreement. They would have been, they would have been taken under the table and not part of the ledger. But I think the death knell comes in verse 8 where Jesus himself identifies the manager as one who is dishonest. He is acting sinfully, cheating the master out of his rightful money, and there's no way around that. So what do we do? Well, first of all, remember, we're, we're talking about parables here. And very often, uh, a mistake is made in parables where we press the details too far, as if there has to be a one-to-one -one correspondence to everything in those, in those verses related to, to God or, or the point that he's trying to make. Even last week, we would have realized we would have run into a real problem looking at the three-part parable from chapter 15, right? There was a shepherd with a lost sheep. Well, that makes sense. God's a shepherd, right? And, and we, we saw at the end a loving father going out to pursue sons. Well, we called, told to call God father. But what was the middle part? A woman looking for a coin. Are we supposed to take that to mean God's a woman? Well, that, that doesn't really fit with the rest of what we see in Scripture. So no, the point is don't press the details. 
And here what we see is, if we look closely, the manager uh, is not being commended. The master is not commending his steward for his dishonorable ways, but rather the foresight of his planning. Verse 8 makes it clear, he was commended for his shrewdness. In other words, it's very possible to look at a crime, see it as a crime, condemn it as a crime, and yet acknowledge the skill at which it was pulled off. Specifically here, the master commends the shrewdness of the manager in preparing for his future. The manager knew he was about to be fired, but he wisely planned so as not to be destitute. Does the master want his money? Absolutely. Nevertheless, he, had, he, can, he can commend this man. He can acknowledge it was a shrewd business deal. And notice what Jesus says as he begins to apply this parable to his disciples in the second half of verse 8. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. So Jesus is using this parable to make this one point that even worldly people know how to deal wisely, deal shrewdly with their money and their energy in order to secure their own interests. The manager saw what was coming and he knew how to plan for it. He was shrewd enough to show generosity toward debtors who would then be more willing to help him out, perhaps even hire him once he's been fired by the master. And Jesus is saying, if pagans can be wise in their pursuit of things in this world only, how much more should the sons of light, God's own people, be wise and shrewd in their pursuit of eternity? So Jesus is looking at his disciples and he's contrasting them with the Pharisees that he's just been talking to. And he's saying, look, they don't understand how to use wealth in the right way. That they claim to be a people who are concerned about eternal interest, but they don't use their money in ways that actually show that to be true. They aren't really concerned with eternal things. By contrast, don't imitate the false righteousness of the Pharisees. Instead, imitate the shrewdness of this manager. Not his sinfulness, but his shrewdness. See your wealth, see your resources as a means of investing in in eternal things. That's the principle that Jesus goes on to apply, give application to in the rest of our passage. So having unpacked that parable, now let's look at see how Jesus applies it specifically in verses 9 through 18. Here we're wanting to see this, that we should live as faithful stewards of God's resources. We should live as faithful stewards. So what does this shrewdness look like in our daily lives? Well, at the very least, it means having a set of priorities that should keep us focused in what we do, decisions we make, and how we live. We should keep asking ourselves from the four things that I'm going to bring out of these verses, do I live this way? Do I think this way in my planning? Are these the priorities that I'm living by? First, we should plan for God's presence. We should plan for God's presence. The shrewd manager wanted to be welcomed into the homes of these debtors. And Jesus says the people of light should be wanting to be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, of course, Jesus is saying we can buy our way into heaven here, right? 
No, that's not what he's saying at all. In fact, Jesus has gone to great lengths just in this gospel alone to say that heaven only comes to those who repent of sins and put their faith in God's promises proclaimed in the gospel. We cannot buy our way into heaven, but we can spend our money and use our resources to prepare for our time there. Specifically, he says that we are to focus on people. Jesus uses the language of friendships. In other words, Jesus is saying that our focus, our planning should be on people rather than on the accumulation of wealth. Specifically, we should be looking at those people that will be with us in the eternal dwelling of God in the future. So think about it like this. It's an example from David Gooding's commentary on Luke. If in heaven, if in heaven it is revealed that your sacrificial giving enabled the translation and printing of the Gospel of John into a new language and that as a result an entire tribe of people came to faith in the one true God out of paganism, would they not be overjoyed and grateful at your friendship in heaven knowing how God used your generosity? But at the same time, if I had the opportunity to give to that translation project, but instead opted to buy some luxury item which made my life easier now, but which I did not need, will those same people, that same tribe, not take more pleasure in your friendship than in my friendship for eternity? See, the reality is this. As Christ people, our, our future is secure we, we know we will forever be in God's presence. If we are to be wise and faithful stewards as Christ commands in here, then we need to be shrewd with our resources and have in our minds that that is where we're headed. So, so very often we are thinking about this life, the here and the now, and, and, and what, what is my portfolio going to look like next year? And what is my retirement plan going to be? And, and, and how am I going to be set up for the future with, with my family and with my, my burial plots and on and on and on? And I'm not saying that it's wrong to think strategically even about providing for ourselves and our family in this life, but what Jesus is saying is this life is not the end. This life is not all there is. We have a future in God's presence, and that needs to be a focus of our planning. It's easy to do that if we allow Jesus' words here about the reality of the empty allure and glamour of excessive wealth to to land clearly in our minds and our hearts. So, So we see that we should plan for God's presence, but we should also pursue God's approval. We should also pursue God's approval. Beginning at verse 10, Jesus says, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Ever since my dad retired from management when I was... Uh, in junior high, uh, every, he's had this consistent problem. Wherever he goes and gets hired, they keep giving him more responsibility. Uh, my, my dad is, 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 I don't say this just as a prideful thing, but uh, one summer I worked the same factory that he worked at, and five people in five different areas of the shop all asked me the same question. Do you work as hard as your dad works? Now that was a reputation to live up to. 
And here's the problem. My, my dad left management because it, it was frankly destroying his health. It was too much stress. He was waking up in the middle of the night feeling like his chest was going to, or his heart was going to explode out of his chest. And he wanted to leave all that behind. But he worked so hard. He is so diligent in, in, in the entry level faithful responsibilities he has. They always bump him up. And so they say, okay, you know, it's a little more responsibility, it's a little more pay, it's going to be good. But then they keep bumping him up, and they keep bumping him up, and eventually he says, I don't want any more responsibility. You understand, it stresses me out, I don't want it, just just let let me stay here. And sometimes the companies have actually said, no, you have to be promoted. We don't have anybody else we can trust. So he says, I'm out. And he goes and finds another job. Because he has this aversion to stress. I don't want anymore. I've lived that life. It nearly destroyed me. I don't want it anymore. But the, 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 the problem is, he's faithful in what he's been given. It might be something small, but it demonstrates we can rely on this guy if we give him more responsibility. And Jesus is making the same point here. He's making the same point. If you are faithful in small things, then you demonstrate that you can be faithful with greater things. How you spend your money on a daily, weekly, even yearly basis may seem like a small thing, but to God, it's an indicator of future greater responsibility. How you deal with the little bit you may, you may even have now says to him how you're going to deal with more. Money is a key indicator because money helps us to see where our heart is. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21? If you're a rock the block worker, you better remember what it says, okay? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That, that, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21. What is he saying here? Where you spend your treasures, where your focus is, that reveals where your heart is. It reveals your priorities. And Jesus is saying something like this. If you cannot handle well temp, something temporal, something that can be used for unrighteousness even like money, how would he ever trust you with something of more significance, something spiritual and eternal? So part of the great aim that we should be pursuing is God's approval, his willingness to say, yes, you were faithful in a small thing, therefore I'm going to trust you with something greater. That should be part of the focus of our lives. As Christ's disciples, we should desire to be faithful stewards by pursuing God's approval over any earthly pleasures that we might be tempted by. And when we do that, it will inevitably lead us, thirdly, to present everything for God's glory. To present everything for God's glory. In verse 13, Jesus makes everything crystal clear. If you, if you haven't got it at this point, verse 13 brings it together. No servant can serve two masters, for he, he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Notice Jesus says there's no middle ground here. There's no middle ground. It's one side or the other. It's light or darkness. It's God or idols. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now the ESV has the word money, but if you have an older translation, it might have mammon. And the context is certainly about money, but mammon can be anything. It doesn't have to just be money. It might be your stomach or your spouse or your sports or your social status or your pleasure or praise from others, on and on and on. It doesn't matter what it is. Mammon can be it all. It's anything that we, we, we see as a resource or as an asset that can be twisted into something that we worship. Notice Jesus doesn't say we shouldn't serve God and money. He says we cannot serve God and money. Why? Why? Because something's going to win out. 
or hopefully someone's going to win out. Both God and mammon will not stay at, will stay at the same place in your life. One will invariably rise to the top. One will become the supreme treasure of your heart. And Jesus is saying here, don't be like those religious hypocrites who do the God thing, who follow the rules, who keep up good appearances, but who really don't know God at all because their stuff is their God. Don't, don't let that happen to you. As Jesus' disciples, we, we have to be more than those who simply come and offer a few hours on a Sunday morning, a, a paltry percentage that goes into an offer plate and says, I'm done, I'm good. God's happy with me. God is saying, you need to offer everything to me. It's, it's not just about your 10%. Most people don't even give that anymore. The average giving percentage of evangelicals in this country is 2%. God is saying, I am supreme, and if I am supreme, then how you spend every last penny should reflect that. How I sleep, how I relax, how I parent, how I love my family and friends, what I drive, where I drive, what movies I see, what books I read, all of it should scream, God is my king. He is my supreme treasure. I'm living for his glory alone. This is what Jesus is saying to his disciples, but notice what happens. The Pharisees are still around there listening, and they begin to mock the Lord Jesus. Luke says the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus. Now already, you have to just ask yourself, does that bother you? But when you read that, does it actually make your stomach do a flip-flop? Do you weep for these people who claim to know God but ridicule their God when he's standing before him? How you honestly answer that question says something, frankly, about where God is as a priority in your life. This isn't just a made-up story. Uh, This historically happened. If If you saw Jesus being ridiculed as he is daily in the course of the events of this world, how does that make you feel? Maybe he's not the priority that he should be in your life. Maybe you've confessed Christ through baptism, maybe even joined this church and have earnestly desired to serve him, but somehow you've ended up far from him in your heart and the priorities of your life. Then you need to hear what Jesus says in the remaining verses, and you need to press hard into God's kingdom. You need to press into God's kingdom. This is what Jesus says faithful stewards do. They press hard into God's kingdom. The Pharisees ridicule what Jesus is saying. Now, why do they ridicule him? Because money is overly important to them. And Jesus has just nailed them to the wall on it. Luke tells us they were lovers of money. But notice how Jesus speaks to them. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before God, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now take these two things together, justifying themselves before others and lovers of money, and you have a cultural clue as to what is going on that Jesus condemns here. There was widespread belief among the Pharisees that to the degree you are wealthy, God was blessing you, he was pleased with you. The more money you had, the more God was happy with you, the more righteous you must obviously be. It was a terrible misunderstanding of who God is and how he works in the lives of his people that persists even to this day. Even to this day. 
There are churches and people and pastors who will say, the more wealth you have, the more blessed you are by God. And certainly on one level that's true because everything we have comes from him. But what about the faithful, righteous person who lives in poverty his whole life? And is far more godly than, than any of us. So here's the Pharisees believed. The more wealth I have, then the more righteous I am and the more God is pleased with me. So what they would do in order to justify themselves before others, for, to have other people look at them and think, boy, they're certainly righteous, they would hoard their wealth. Rather than spend it generously, rather than advance God's kingdom in this world, they, they, they would amass large bank accounts. So people would look at them and say, well, they must be doing really well. God must, must love them more. They must be really righteous to be so blessed by God. They forgot the most important thing, looking righteous before God rather than man. That's why Jesus says, look, God knows your heart. You can't fool people by your bank account. You can't fool people by the gold rings that you wear, by the, the fancy robes that you display at the synagogue and at the temple. God knows your heart. And you should be worried about being justified before him not mere men, because you can fool everybody else, but you can't fool God. And what is exalted among men is an abomination in his sight. But we simply have to ask, are we, are we like the Pharisees? Do, do we have some kind of measurement, some kind of metric in our mind that, that to us equates blessing and acceptance with God, and therefore we strive for that rather than God himself? Do we, do we exalt in the gift rather than the giver? Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. He's writing over 100 years ago, and yet his words ring more true probably now than they did in his day. It's a little bit longer than what I would typically read, so, so listen closely here. The truth of this solemn saying, that is what Jesus has just said, the verses we've just talked about, the truth of the solemn saying of Jesus appears on every side of us. We have only to look around the world and mark the things on which most people set their affections to see what Jesus says proved a hundred ways. Riches, honors, rank, pleasure. These are the chief objects for which the greater part of mankind are living. Yet these are the very things that God declares to be empty vanity. And the love of them, he warns us to beware praying and Bible reading and holy living and repentance and faith and grace and communion with God. These are the things for which few people care at all, yet these are the things which God in his Bible is ever urging on our attention. The disagreement between these two things is glaring, painful, and appalling. What God calls good, we call evil. And what God calls evil, we call good. The more entirely we are of one mind with God as to what he calls good, the better we are prepared for the day of judgment. To love what God loves, to hate what God hates, to approve what God approves. This is the highest style of Christianity. The moment we find ourselves honoring anything which in the sight of God is lightly esteemed, we may be sure that there is something wrong in our souls. This morning, is there something wrong in our souls? Do we, do we have in the guise of religiosity subscribe to misplaced priorities that sees not God as the highest good, but the things that he's given to us. We should know this quite clearly. Just the Pharisees should have known this because it's been the consistent message of God all along. 
Jesus says to them, as to the Pharisees, the law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What is he saying? He's saying that even in this new covenant in Christ, the moral character of God, the expectations he has of his people remain the same. Maybe not in the details, but certainly in the ethos of it. Yet he looks at the Pharisees and says their lives do not display it. It might seem out of place at first, but notice the example he gives. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced her, divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, where does that come from? What does that have to do with fitting the argument? It looks like Luke just kind of shoved this in here. This is like a good place to put this. No, again, the Pharisees had a very low view of marriage. In fact, some rabbis twisted Moses' words in the Old Testament where he says, because of sexual immorality, you are, you're permitted to divorce, but you must give a certificate of divorce to that woman as you send her on your way, seeking to, to, preserve, to preserve integrity and, and everything else. But some rabbis twisted that to mean basically any reason you could divorce your wife. I mean, literally, you can, you can look up and you can read rabbis in Jesus' day who said, oh, wife burns a meal, you can divorce her. You don't need a bad cook. Come on, you're better than that. My my personal favorite in terms of its uh, despicableness is if you see a woman that is younger and more pretty than your wife, you can divorce your current old hag and go after the pretty woman. I mean, that's USA 2014, is it not? All, All of that. And Jesus is saying, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? He says, no, not one dot of the law is going to... No, no, what is that? Well, imagine a... Uh, because most of you don't know what Hebrew character looks like, think about English letters. If you have a capital E and a capital F, what's the difference? One little stroke of the pen at the bottom. That's what, that's what he's talking about. He's saying it would be easier for one little stroke of the Old Testament, it would be easier for the whole world to fall apart than for one little stroke not to be fulfilled the way that God wants it to be. And he says, he says, look, Pharisees, you're all about blasting trumpets in the streets and about puffing out your chest, the synagogues, and you make a big deal about the law, but you don't actually keep the law. You really don't care about it. You trash it. You duck and you dodge. and You look for every loophole imaginable. And rather than striving hard, failing, and calling out for God's mercy and being saved, you just, you just try and avoid it. And get around it and make it manageable so that you can go to heaven by your righteousness. And Jesus says, that's not how people are supposed to enter the kingdom. He says, I look around to these crowds and that's not how they're entering the kingdom. He says, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John and now, now they are being fulfilled in the gospel which is being proclaimed and they are violently pressing their way in from all sides. They want grace. They have, they have felt the weight of the law. They have tried to obtain righteousness and they know I can't do this. I need mercy. And now they see me preaching mercy, preaching grace and they want it. And they'll do anything to get it. And he says, that's what you should be doing. Not, not relying on yourself, not, not, not stroking your ego and trying to look, look awesome in front of other people. You should be concerned with how God sees you, pressing hard to get the grace that he offers. He says, when the good news of the kingdom is preached, people grasp onto it and force their way in. So in the pursuit of God, we leave nothing on the field. We hold nothing back. Everything is considered loss if we can obtain Christ. 
As we step back and we think about all this, it's important that we keep things in the right order because it would be very easy to hear this kind of passage and walk away thinking, okay, this is how I get saved. I live this way. And then I'm acceptable to God. That's not what Jesus is saying at all. I would not agree on probably many things that Bono says, but uh, you know, he's a guy that was in this little band called U2. Maybe you, you, you heard about it. Um, but he gets the gospel right. In an interview from a few years back, here's what he said. At the center of all the religion in the world is the idea of karma. You know, what you put out comes back to you. Yet along comes this idea called grace to upend all that. Love interrupts the consequences of your actions, which in my case is very good news indeed because I've done a lot of stupid stuff. It doesn't excuse my mistakes, but I'm holding on to grace. I'm holding out that Jesus took my sins onto the cross because I know who I am and I hope I don't have to depend on my own religiosity. He's nailed it. He's got it. The kind of life that Jesus is talking about is not what gets you into the kingdom. It is the fruit of the kingdom. It is the evidence that you have come to an end of yourself and said, I cannot, I cannot by religious duty or performance, moral character or anything else, make it to God. I need Christ. And once we see the beauty of that, of His sacrifice, His offering for us, every song this morning that we've sung has been about the cross and about the gospel message that we don't save ourselves, God saves us through His Son. And the righteousness that is provided there. When we understand that, then this is the life that we will joyfully live that Jesus is talking about here. He says, this is what my disciples look like. They've already come to me and found salvation. And now this is how, this is how grace upends their life, turns it around, and reprioritizes. So if we're not there, if, if Luke 16 does not describe our life in this morning, let us repent. Let, let us ask for forgiveness, and then let us call out for grace that we may strive hard to become these good and faithful and shrewd servants of Almighty God. Father, what more can we say but blessed be the name of the Lord, the God who saves His people. Lord, this is what Christ has done, and He shows us because of, the, because of that saving work, Lord, the, the, the the radical reorientation that should follow. Lord, when we've rightly understood grace, our lives should be so different than what they often are. Father, this morning, if there is someone here and they have never come to a saving faith in Christ, if they have never looked to Him as the only means of their salvation, then God, I pray that You would help them to understand the gospel that's been preached, that you would open their blind eyes and that by your Spirit's power, you would grant faith that they might believe and be saved. Father, for most of us that are here that are saved, God, renew our affections, renew our passion and our commitment. Help us, God, to think, to think not as the world presses us in to think about the daily comings and goings and pleasures and luxuries and ease of life. Father, may those things be necessities. But God, may, that, or may they not be necessities, God, but optional extras. May, may you be the only necessary thing in our life. May our great pursuit be loving you and seeking after you and serving you wisely with the resources that you've given to us. Father, all that we have from the clothes in our backs to the children at our feet, to the cars that we drive in, the jobs that we work, Father, all of it has come from your hand. How can we not now honor you with it? Father, this is our prayer. 
Only you can change our hearts. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.